Our scripture reading for this morning comes from the book of John, and we will be studying John 1, 1 through 18 this morning. And we've been reading together, we've read together all of the book of Titus, but shifting over to a gospel from an epistle, one book being relatively small compared to a relatively larger book. We will not be able to read together each week. Sometimes we will, other times we will not, and the times we do not is because of the length of the verses. We're going to study through each verse of the Gospel of John, and we don't know exactly how long that'll take us. To give you a a gauge, it should take you about seven minutes to read through Titus. It should take you about two hours to read through the Gospel of John. So we'll read through some of it together. But listen as I read along, and that's number 909 in your pew Bible. If you don't have a Bible of your own with you this morning, or uh, as some say these days, uh, turn your Bible on if that's on your uh, phone or, or iPad. But let me read to you what we'll be considering this morning, and then we'll pray. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. That light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. Verse 9, the true light which enlightens everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came into his own and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Verse 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. And from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we ask for the ability to see in front of us simple truth, that I would not cloud wisdom with too many words this morning, that we'd be able to see see clearly what it is you have for us to see in our mind's eye, understand with our understanding and obey with our will and our resolve. All of these things are your gifts to us. So we ask you to make this word live to us today. And we ask this in your name. Amen. 
Well, if you recall, last week we began our study of the book of John, and we did so unconventionally. We went to the end of the book and looked at the end first. Not quite to the end, but close to the end. We studied John's footnote as he explained in in brief detail what the rest of his book is about. And we answered two questions. Why did John write his record of the gospel? He gives us that in uh, chapter 20, verse 31. These are written. I wrote this so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and believing you might have life through his name. So he wrote these things to convince you of that truth, that Jesus is who he said he was. And then we answer the question, how did he go about doing it? He told us that uh, in the previous verse, verse 30. Where he said, and many signs did Jesus in the company of disciples, which are not written in this book. So of all the things that he saw Jesus do, he only chose a few, seven actually, to put in these 20 or so chapters to convince you that Jesus was who he said he was. And what we do this morning, looking at these first 18 verses, and we're not going to study them all, but we're going to get a basic glimpse of what they mean together. Again, as far as the structure of John's work, I talked about that last week. I know that's why you got out of bed this morning, to learn things in English like literature and structure and how things are put together. But they're important to us. And the reason we spend the time on them is because of their importance. No one ever throws a party when they pour the footer at their house. That's pretty boring. You dig a ditch and you pour concrete in it. But on that footer, you build the foundation. And on that foundation, you raise the walls. And on the walls, you sit the roof. Until you've formed the footer, you can't begin any of the other steps. This is important, though maybe not the most exciting. It's there for a purpose. The whole weight of this work will, will rest on this foundation. So let's look a, f- a bit more details as to how Paul arranges this. These first 18 verses... We're going to call his thesis. And that's the title of this morning's message. That's quite original. I thought this is suitable for, for billboard use. John's thesis. That's what we study. These first 18 verses. And if you think of it that way, if we're thinking of English class, when you began writing, and that was usually, I don't know, before or after the torture of diagramming sentences... You're actually given the opportunity to begin writing something. And before you ever got to the body of your writing, whether it's a research paper or, or, or whatever else, professionals do the same thing. If it's a column, if it's an article, if it's a novel, if it's a biographical, historical book, it all begins with a thesis. The claims, the statements, the arguments you want to flesh out and broaden and explain in the body of your work are there at the beginning. And the same is true with what John is doing. Now here's one very important note. And in my notes here, it's all caps, and I highlighted it. So hopefully you can hear in my voice, this is highlighted and it's in all caps. This is important. Everything from what we read forward, that's chapter 1, verse 19, all the way to what we studied last week, which is chapter 20, verse 30 and 31. So you're dealing with 119 through 2029. All of that is just explanatory uh, 
supporting arguments for the claims that are made in what we just read. I don't know if it sounds like the whole Gospel of John was condensed into what we just read, but it's all there. And what I mean by this is by the time we get to, say, chapter 2 in a few weeks, and Jesus is at a wedding feast in Cana, and he turns water into wine, and the inquiring mind says, how in the world can he do that? Well, John's already said, look at this in verse 1, in the beginning was the Word, that's Jesus, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. It's no big deal for the man who created, let's see in verse 3, all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. The man who made water out of nothing, that's no big deal for him to make wine out of water. So what we read in chapter 2 is just giving supporting arguments for the claim that's made in verse 1 of chapter 1. That's how this is arranged. All of it is condensed into these verses. Now we're not going to study all 18 verses this morning. That's a little too ambitious. We'll save most of that for next week and the weeks to come. But what we will do is isolate out of those 18 verses the three statements that John makes that are the three pillars of this book. They are verses 1, verse 14, and verse 18. If you were to read through this, the statements are made in those verses. And what you see in, say, verse 2 down through 13, that's supporting material for verse 1. What you see in 15, 16, and 17, that's support material for verse 14. And then verse 18 is a summary statement or the reason why he's made claim one and claim two. So three claims and that's what we'll do uh, with our time this morning. And if you think about it like that, that's not different than the way we talk. We're just looking at a way a man organizes his thoughts and organizes his arguments, his statements to convince us that Jesus was the Christ, the son of the living God. We do this all the time, talking at the house. You'll say something, a statement with a period at the end. And then you'll explain what you mean by what you said. You can see it, uh, let's say, on the playground. One boy walks up to another boy, looks him in the face and says, My daddy is better than your daddy. That's a statement, right? Now the other boy, looking at the boy who just made the statement, would like some supporting details. Because he thinks... His daddy is better than the other kid's daddy. So in convincing one or the other that their daddy is better, you're going to need to flesh that out. You're going to need some supporting evidence of that claim that you've said. So you think about this. John has already given us the bold claim of Jesus Christ, that he is God's son. Can any human on the planet make a more bold claim than to say, I'm not just any human. I'm God, the creator, the reason why this whole place is here. And then the rest of the book supports these things. Okay, if you're going to say that Jesus, the carpenter who lived in Nazareth, is God, I want to see some evidence to support that fact. And that's why he throws those seven signs to make his argument. But all these are right here in the first 13 verses. So if we read this, and, and this is just, this is just uh, to clear this in your mind, for some of you this will be great, for others of you maybe not so much, but this is just a way of organizing things. If I were to strip away 
all the supporting details in these 18 verses and only read the three statements, one after the other. Verse 1, 14, and 18. This is what it would sound like. So just paint the picture in your mind as we go. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We've seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, He has made Him known. So those are your statements. And to boil them down a, a, a bit tighter, here's what is tucked away in those three statements. And these will be our three points. One, from verse one, Jesus is God. Number two, from verse 14, Jesus became a man. And then point number three from verse 18, to show us the Father. That's John's book. That's what he's saying. Jesus was God. Jesus became man. And he did so to show us, to explain for us, to introduce us to his Father in heaven. Otherwise, we would know nothing about him. What he expects of us, to make sense of what he's done with the Hebrew people for so many centuries. Jesus will explain this to us. Jesus is the explanation of God the Father. That's what John is saying. So let's look at each of these. And if you're one that likes to mark your Bibles and make notes, marking up this first verse, verse 1 from John's Gospel. It begins the same way that Genesis 1-1 begins. Same way as John 1-1. But there are three phrases there. In the beginning was the Word, comma, and the Word was with God, comma, and the Word was God. Three phrases in that sentence. You'll see the word, Word with a capital W, three times. You'll see the word was, three times. You'll see the word God, twice. And if we were Greek students, we'd be able to see the simplistic beauty of the way John arranged this using those words. But I'm not sure we have any Greek scholars in this room. I know I'm not one. So we'll do our best to get at this in English through our translations. We can see enough of it. But look at the first phrase. In the beginning was the word. That recognizes or explains a continuous fact. All three of those was words in there are what we would call the imperfect tense. That's a little difficult for us in English because it's not the same as in ancient Greek. But what it describes uh, is a continuing situation in the past. We don't really have an English way of getting at it quite that way. Not an event in the past. Think of a timeline. This is not referring to a dot on a timeline. This is referring to an arrow backward into infinity on a timeline. In the beginning when we came into existence, when God created this world and everything that's in it, the Word, who is Jesus, was already there, had been there, will be there. It's actually infinity in both directions. It's a timeless situation, not an event. That's difficult for us in English, but this is what this means. And you could go further. And the Word was with God in the same way continuously. They were together. 
And the Word was God, the same thing, constantly, at all times, past, present, and future. Um, The reason why this is so difficult for us is because we don't think this way. We're going to have a funeral later today where we're going to mention a date of birth and a date of death. There was a beginning, there was an end. That's the way we humans look at this world. We wear watches. That's what was bad about this morning. You had to change your clocks last afternoon, right? One of your uh, beloved staff members last night was kind enough to remind me to fall forward. (laughs) Wasn't that a nice reminder? Not to fall backwards. It's messing with me. But isn't that just the way we live? If we get the clock off, everything's messed up, right? How do we even begin to think about a time where there's no such thing as time? Where we've always been and we always will be. That's eternity. So what's being said in verse 1 is we comprehend it, but we cannot relate to it. Because it's, it's distant to us. We don't know even how to put it into thinking. It's like a snake eating its tail. It seems to just wrap around on itself. Infinity. But that's what God was. The Word was in the beginning. The Word was with God. So we see here that the Word, which is Jesus and God, were in a relationship together. That's two persons of the Trinity. Another theological discussion which would take some time, and even then it's mysterious to us. And then the last phrase, the Word was God. That means that the Word and God are the same thing, which is why the Trinity is difficult to understand. How can three distinct persons be one person? Again, we don't know because we can't relate to that type of thing. Now, why use the word word to describe Jesus? In Greek, that's the word logos. Here, it's word with a capital W. Well, it could have to do with wisdom that the Hebrews were very familiar with. They would use words to teach little boys who knew nothing of life, what it meant to live and how to make decisions to give them wisdom. And it took time through lots of words in order with thoughts. And that's the way we communicate with each other. A word is the basic unit of our communication. We learn things through words as we speak them to each other. Uh, A culture that doesn't read at all has a tough time looking at this the same way that the Hebrews and the Jews and the Greeks would have. But I think the best way to put it is this. The final and decisive message from God to this planet Earth was the Word, Jesus Christ. He's the message. He's going to explain these things for us. Remember when we were going through, He saved us in Titus. And we talked about how there was Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph and uh, the tribes of, of, of Israel, and then Egypt, and then Moses, and then uh, the judges, and then prophets and kings, all to show the world who God is through this people, but it never seemed to be clearly communicated who God was, or that he had some way to reverse what fell apart in the Garden of Eden, until Jesus came himself. I'll do for them what they can't do for themselves. Jesus is the gospel. Jesus is the message. Jesus is the word from God. That's why he's described like that in this way. So let's look at what happens in verse 14, which is point number two. Because 
What we see in verse 1 is distant to us. It's talking about eternity. It's talking about a God who is spirit. A God who is difficult to see or understand. But then when we get to verse 14, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We have seen His glory with our eyes and with our mind. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So what you've got in verse 14 is the same noun that we've got in verse 1. That word with the, with the capital W, it's the very same thing, the very same person. The one who's always been in eternity, the one who was with God constantly in eternity, the one who is God in eternity is in verse 14. But look what happens. There's a different verb. Not was, but became. The word from forever past has now become flesh. Now, if we can't relate to God who is a spirit, this is completely different. This is a game changer. We know flesh all too well, don't we? We know what happens to flesh as it ages. We know what happens in our minds as we try to make decisions. We know what it's like to get up in the morning, go to work, Most of the day, come home exhausted, get in the bed, rinse and repeat. We know the form of our frailty. We know beginning and ending. Except in this case, it's not that Jesus became like we became. Jesus has always been. The Word's always been. But the Word became something that it was not already. You have to go to Philippians 2 as Paul explains what happened. How the God of eternity actually took on himself humanity now God can do that the, re- the, the reverse of that can't be done people can't just you know one day I think I think I'll be God for the day but God could say I think I'd be a person for a time he added something he didn't take something away from him he added to it so what we see here is this God in mystery in verse 1 becoming God in flesh in verse 2 so try this on Think through this in your mind. And for some of you, this might be huge. Whatever is meant in verse 1 by the word is the same thing in verse 14. But all the mystery that defies thinking of eternity and spirit, past and future, has forever been modified by something that we're very familiar with, flesh. So the same word from verse 1, Jesus, left heaven, left eternity, left being side by side, as it were, with the Father, and took on the form of a human to be bound by space and time. His days passed like ours do with a watch. He ate food like we ate. The man at the wedding feast of Cana was as much man as any of the rest of us. But that man at the wedding feast of Cana was the creator of this universe. The man in Gethsemane, again a man, sweating blood from his brow under such stress, was the creator of the universe. The one we see in all these stories John's going to tell. We almost, listening to John, think of him as any man like anybody. But we cannot forget verse 1. From the beginning, this was God, who at some point 
through his virgin birth with Mary, became a human. And why did he do all of this? The man at the wedding feast, the well, the mountain, why would he leave heaven? Why would he leave eternity? To, is, there's really no way around our human brain thinking of it as the ultimate downgrade. Why would he do this? So, so far, you got these two. In the beginning was the word. That existence is boundless, eternity, shrouded by mystery. Our imagination falls short of what that's like. But then the word became flesh, which existence is bound by time and space and very much human. It says that he dwelt with us, pitched his tent among us, the creator of the universe. And here's why he did it. So the things that we couldn't see, we began to see. And the things that we didn't know, we would begin to know. And the things that we never heard clearly would be crystal clear by the time he is done speaking over the period of a three-year ministry here on earth. So this takes us right to verse 18. Look at it. This is our final point. Jesus will show us the Father. It's as if he just kind of stops and makes this bold statement. No one has ever seen God. And then with the Greek, it gets a little bit difficult to explain. He says the only God, and that's not in reference to God the Father, but the one who's at the Father's side. Look at that. Who is at the Father's side? So we're talking about Jesus. It's clear. That's what he's saying. And this, he has made him known. Now, what does it mean that we've never seen God? If you know your Sunday school uh, classes, you're teaching even the flannel graph when you were kids, you know that Moses got to see a little bit, right? From the cleft of the rock, he saw his backside. And what did it do to him? He turned his face white. He would glow. He had to put a veil on it because when he went down from the mountain, Everybody couldn't get over it. What's happened to Moses? Even Moses, who spoke with God as a man, it said, couldn't quite understand God as if he had talked to Jesus, his son. As much as seeing it is understanding. I mean, you think about that. When you think about Jesus, God... Father, God the Father, the Holy Spirit. Which one do you feel closer to? Um, one of the songs written by the fellow that wrote the choir special has a song where he talks about these things and refers to Jesus as Brother Jesus, which sometimes if you look at it that way, God the Father, this is his son, that would make us brothers. But for the purpose of being able to understand through him, I think we talked about this on a Wednesday night. There's plenty of times where I ran something by my brother before I actually went to dad about it. Because there just seems to be something between son and father that's different between brother to brother. And this mysterious shroud from the Old Testament and this God known to the people as a pillar of fire by day and a pillar, pillar of fire by night, pillar of cloud by day. This judging God, the one you could not go into the 
Holy of holies without the right. The man who accidentally tried to steady the Ark of the Covenant was smitten dead for touching it because he wasn't supposed to. What kind of God like this could we ever have any relationship with? He's holy and we're not. What do we do about it? Nothing. Unless, of course, his son comes to explain how that gap is bridged. His son happens to be in perfect harmony with him because he's never sinned. And he's going to give to us what he's got in exchange for what we have, and that's sin. All of this is explained through what John is setting up here. If we were to look at the Greek, this word here, made him known or has made him known, that's the ideas we get the term exegesis from, which is a fancy word for explain. So it's as if to say Jesus is here to explain his father. And the explanation is in these terms. An authoritative bringing forth into visibility that which was there all along but not seen until it's brought forth. The unveiling of a mystery. Jesus is the explanation of God. Question is, do you know him? This is where, uh, you know, every now and then you see something in our culture that really seems to make a statement. You're familiar with Larry King. He's probably the most famous interviewer uh, living. And he's interviewed just about everybody. But at one point, someone asked him, if you could interview anybody, living or dead, who would you interview? And he said, Jesus Christ. And the person said, what would you ask him? He said, whether or not he was really virgin born. Because if he was... That would change human history. So Larry King, I don't know if he's a believer, but he, he, he's wise enough to know that if the claims of Christ are true, if he really is God's son, that is the game changer of all game changers. So what I've been intrigued with since I heard that is, Mr. King, why are you not on a life's quest find the answer to that question because if it's a game changer then you've just got to know right you'd have to I mean some information is more important than other information and based on the importance of it is how much impact it has on our life you say the word fire big deal you say the word fire really loud in a building full of people that's a bigger deal but to say that this God became a man to explain the Father and undo what happened in Eden. We've got to know. We've got to see the evidence. We've got to weigh this and think it through. And because our lives depend on it, we're going to have to put our trust into whether or not, as uh, David mentioned at the uh, end of last week's service, either Jesus, according to C.S. Lewis, is a liar. He made it all up. Fancy story at that. Or he's a lunatic. He believes it. It's just not true. Which makes him crazy. Or he's Lord. It is true. And if it's true, that changes everything. As far as application for this message this morning, you know, some some, uh, messages don't have points. Those are pointless. Some... (laughs) are applicationless, but that doesn't mean they're useless. 
that really in what we've seen here, John's just making bold claims that he's going to support in the next 20 chapters. Sometimes I think the application to a passage is no more complicated than just to leave the listener in awe of the God who not only created them, but gave his most precious son to make sure they knew how much. That's quite a claim. Wonder, awe, just to sit and gaze of the things we've been singing about this morning, the promises of, of, of Jesus. Even over the course of your lifetime, all those things, singing, dancing, crying, flying to Jesus. It's all laid out here, right here in this book. So this isn't a go thou and do likewise sermon. This is a go home and think about these things. And if you need more information, you, you haven't known Jesus as long as some of us have. Or maybe you don't know that you'd say that you know him yet. Talk with the person that brought you here this morning, your friend if you're a guest. Come talk to one of us as a staff member. And we're going to be giving this, this invitation as we move through this. This is our introduction as a family. And this is partly on me as the new guy. We're going to learn all this together. But we've got some quite audacious claims from a man who knew Jesus quite well, John. And over the weeks to come, we're going to see whether or not his evidence supports those claims. Of course they do. But we're going to have fun learning it as we go along. Fun's not the word. Let us pray. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, we pause now to thank you for the opportunity that we've had to worship together today. Lord, we praise you for being in our presence this morning and for the truth that you are always with us no matter the circumstances. Thank you, Lord, for Wake Chapel Christian Church and for the ministry of our church. We pray, Father, that all we do at Wake Chapel is to the glory of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, head of the church and our risen king. Father, we pray for our mission, all of our mission endeavors, but especially today for Endure International whose goal is to help establish viable, reproductive, biblically sound, and self-supporting churches in every major city across the Middle East. Father, abide with us now as we go our separate ways, imparting in us the loving spirit of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We ask these in all prayers in Jesus' name.